Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. As we weep for what we have lost and as we grieve for family and friends and we confront the challenge that is before us, I want us to remember who we are. Suddenly, (laughs) (laughs) we are Queenslanders, I continued. We're the people that they breed tough north of the border. We're the ones that they knock down and we get up again. I said earlier this week that this weather may break our hearts, and it is doing that, but it will not break our will. And in the coming weeks and in the coming months, we are going to prove that beyond any doubt. Together we can pull through this, and that's what I'm determined to do, and with your help we can achieve it. That's what we did. I do reflect a bit on that in the book. I'm often asked this question, and I've, you, don't have much, you don't have time in the middle of a crisis and a disaster to reflect on what you're doing, and you certainly don't have time to think about yourself. You just keep you know, making the decisions as they come and try to make sure that you get a little bit of sleep and you try to keep yourself and the machine kind of well-oiled so that you can keep being ready for whatever the next piece of um, information or, or decision might be. It was not obvious to us at the beginning that this was going to be a six-week rolling disaster. And it's sort of the nature of crises. You don't know if they're a 24-hour problem or a four-week problem when they first land in your lap. When I look back on those times, and I've, you know, I do in the book, I've, I've had enough time to, it's not so close that I can't see it a bit. And you know, ultimately, I think, you know, I kept going because I didn't feel I had a choice. And, Part of that is duty. If you take on the role of leadership, uh, you have a responsibility and a duty to see the thing through and to go the distance and stick with it. And I certainly felt that. Um, but I actually didn't feel like I had a choice. And you know, the, one of the things I compare it to is childbirth. You know, everyone who could would leave if they could. You, know? um, <laughs> you actually can't get up and walk out in the middle of it. And it felt like that. It was felt like this was not something I actually could walk away from. Uh, not that I ever felt at any time that I did, but that I wanted to, but I certainly wanted it to stop. And I think that's how everyone felt, and we couldn't believe when it just kept going. Um, around the emergency services table, uh, there's a lot of people who've dealt with a lot of crises, and a lot of the ways that they manage it at a personal level is with humour. 
And uh, you know, once we heard that Cyclone Yazi was coming, there was just an enormous breakout of, oh, well, we'll get ready for the locusts, and when's the plague coming, and when are we going to be invaded by aliens? Because it just felt so completely unbelievable. You spoke just a minute ago, and you talk about it in the book as well, about a sense of um, taking responsibility, a sense of duty. And you talk about um, times in your childhood as the oldest uh, of four children, um, being your mother's helper and looking after your younger brothers and sisters. You even talk about your brother John writing a poem to you. In the book, uh, I don't, this book does not pretend to be a comprehensive biography of my life, uh, and nor is it a standard political biography. It's a much more of a personal reflection. Uh, but in that process, it's, I think, the question, one of the questions I have of myself is, what, why did I put my hand up for this job? You know, what was it about me and why did I, uh, uh, you know, seek it out? And so in that I've explored a little bit of my childhood and because of my parents' um, difficulties and my mother's um, early divorce uh, as the eldest, I did take on, I think, a number of adult responsibilities uh, younger than I would otherwise have done. And uh, while there was lots of tough things about that at the time, I, in looking back at it, I think it did instill in me a great sense of responsibility and an ability to, uh, to take on, to take charge when I needed to, because my mother worked night duty in a hospital and I was often the oldest, most responsible person there, which, you know, for a sort of 13-year-old <laughs> with my brothers and sisters was, <laughs> was quite, a, quite a thing sometimes. But yes, on my 50th birthday, my youngest brother wrote, and he's not a writer or a poet, uh, you know, he's a knockabout bloke who works in an abattoir, and he sat down and wrote quite a long poem to me and was called uh, My Other Mother. And, it was, and I hadn't really realised until all those years later how much, because uh, he, um, he was sort of eight or nine at the time when I was doing this, and you know, the, the effect for him and for all of us of that time in our lives. And you think it's all left behind you, but uh, you know, here it was nearly for him 40 years on. And the ripple effect through our lives of those formative years is for all of us, I think, quite a powerful force that uh, we often don't really understand. You talked about um, being in the school playground and seeing your younger brother, Kane, playing in the wrong playground mm -hmm. at one of the one of you went to a new school and he couldn't have known that he was hauled up in front of everybody and not just physically hurt but humiliated and um, how uh, angry and powerless that made you feel. Do you think that you can draw a line between that and the Ford Royal Commission? Because this idea of being the voice for the voiceless and The day that the people who had been campaigning for a royal commission came and sat in your office and spoke to you until they had exhausted everything they had to say, and you had to then go and make a case to your colleagues to invest time and energy and money and political capital in giving a voice to the voiceless. What prompted you to do that? I hadn't actually drawn quite that line, but um, <laughs> no, but I, I, I do see the point. Uh, 
I, I talk about that incident with my brother in the context of a contemplation in the book about how, how do we get strong? What are the things that make us strong? And you know, when I look at those people who I admire in either in public life, in political life, but also in corporate life, uh, they, many of them have formed those characteristics long before they were in their positions and for most of them in, um, in personal experiences in their families, on sporting fields, and often we don't acknowledge that enough. And uh, I think one of, I, I list that as one example of moments in my life where uh, on the one hand I've had to call on a certain strength in myself but I've also known what it feels like to feel weak and I felt that terrible feeling of weakness that children have when they witness something that they know is unjust and they know is cruel but they are unable. I was nine years old and my brother was eight and I knew that it was terribly wrong and I couldn't save him and I couldn't rescue him. We were all standing on assembly and being made to watch this and it just has stuck in me ever since as a really good example of what I don't want to be. You know, I want to be the person. I wanted to put myself in a position in my life where if I could, I would always be able to stand up when I saw that sort of thing happening in my future. That when I was an adult, I'd, I'd be able to, you know, take that on. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it certainly has, you know, that and other similar, similar experiences very motivating. One of the things that you, one of the powers you have when you have the great privilege of being in government is that you can be a voice for the voiceless. And on those occasions when we've seen that power used, uh, I think we've all seen the power of the truth that it unearths. We're seeing it now with the Royal Commission of Inquiry, uh, and I certainly saw the same thing writ large in my community when we established the Ford Commission of Inquiry that was looking at very similar issues. Things that had been hidden, swept under the carpet for decades. And when that powerful truth is unearthed and exposed to sunlight, it has the most amazing, liberating effect on people who've experienced uh, those terrible things. Including, you said, some church figures who had been in complete denial. Absolutely. Uh, the, the then Bishop of uh, Rockhampton, Bishop Heenan, uh, when the people wanted the, who were campaigning first started talking about these issues, and they were such hard things to talk about, he put a letter out to the whole parish uh, saying these people are simply out to ruin the church, they're telling lies, don't believe them, and preached, uh, the, gave a sermon to that effect, which made the front page of the Rockhampton Bulletin. And to their credit, a very small group went and said they wanted to see him. And to his credit, he saw them. And after he had met with them, he was so overwhelmed with the truth of what they were saying. He then gave another sermon saying, I've got it all wrong, and moved to completely change his position. I mean, I don't know how old he was at the time, but you know, he was a, you know, probably a bishop in his late 50s, early 60s. Very hard for any of us to change our mind at that point in our lives, and to do it, to do such a U-turn so publicly was, you know, it, to me it spoke about the power of the truth. When you are confronted with it, uh, you really, you know, you, if you deny it, you really are putting up a big wall. So, you know, I've always had an enormous respect for Bishop Heenan because I think, and he then went on to be a very important person uh, in the healing process within that community. There's another section in the book where you talk about um, having, uh, or the Labor Party as a whole, having its sort of sacred cows slaughtered, challenged, I'm not sure how to <laughs> put it, but 
You say, it was an epic fight for power between the new and old guards of the Labor Party. It was an awful tug of war between those who could not see a role for government that was different from that of the 1950s and those who wanted to create forms of government that would suit present circumstances. Between those who believed that being true to your principles meant holding steadfastly to the way things had always been and those who understood that the world, especially the world of work, was constantly changing. It was about the fight with the um, ETU about um, privatisation, which must have been one of your toughest battles within the Labor Party. Um, and uh, one of the, I think, probably bravest things that you took on as leader. It was certainly the toughest thing uh, and certainly not a fight that I sought. Uh, I was Premier, I oh, when I became Premier, Queensland was in the groups of its, or South East Queensland, um, part of my state was in the groups of the worst ever drought that we had had and we were on the, literally on the brink of uh, the dam that supplies Brisbane with water running out. Um, we then had the global financial crisis and the terrible economic impact that that had on people's lives and then we had a series of the worst natural disasters. So I did feel like I went from you know, crisis to crisis and the decision around privatisation was very much driven by uh, what happened to the Queensland economy because of the nature of our economy and what that meant for our budget um, as a result of the GFC. Uh, I still have a very strong view that that was the only decision open to us if we wanted to keep the projects we were building and keep people in work. You know, sometimes in politics there are really strong principles that actually conflict at a particular point. And you know, our platform had we believe in full employment uh, and I think you know, one of the things for me that's always drawn me to the Labor Party and uh, one of its values that I hold most dear is that one about you know, the dignity of work and how important it is to keep people in jobs. And on the other hand, uh, this principle around public ownership. And at that point in our economic uh, circumstances, they were irreconcilable. So I chose jobs, um, you know, but I did in doing so take on a very big battle with some parts of the Labor Party. And you know, it's been an interesting day in New South Wales. I mean, you know, an interesting couple of weeks on this issue. I'm not someone who believes either in complete public ownership or complete privatisation. I think you've got to look at every asset on its um, merits and there are some things that eventually get to the point where I think it doesn't make sense for the taxpayers to be underwriting them. Um, and there are other things that should stay in public ownership always. And that's a very hard conversation to have in the Labor Party and one that I think we've really got to grapple with a bit more, with a bit more sophistication. And you were also at a time when you were borrowing money to invest in building infrastructure to keep people working, but also to uh, deal with large growth in population, particularly in South East Queensland, and you were facing a, right, a, a change to your state credit rating, which would have added enormously borrowing costs if you hadn't taken action. Absolutely. We'd already seen a downgrade in our credit rating. We were at risk of a further one. And uh, it's easy to say, oh, credit ratings don't matter. But what they actually do is add to the price of borrowing. So the money that we already had borrowed for new schools, new hospitals, new roads, uh, the cost of that was escalating at a cost to the budget. So it was a very hard call. Um, it would have been an equally difficult call, though, to say we're going to do nothing and we're going to watch uh, you know, another downgrade of our credit rating and what that would have mean, meant for Labor's credentials as economic managers. Uh, ultimately, the only part of our rail system that we privatised 
was that part of it that transports coal from coal mines to port. And it tra they transport coal uh, on behalf of the largest global mining companies on earth. And taxpayers were underwriting the cost of that. And I couldn't see how there was a single labour value in us continuing to do it. Uh, it made absolute sense at the beginning of the coal industry for us to, you know, we wouldn't have a coal industry in the mining industry in Queensland if there hadn't been some government involvement. As I said, you know, 60 years down the line, here we were effectively subsidising uh, the cost of transport for BHP, Rio Tinto and their mates. Uh, and it didn't seem to me that that's where taxpayers' dollars should go. Uh, and it didn't seem like a very progressive way of running. Um, and, but I do think, conversely, I mean, we didn't do anything with the public transport. I think that is an important government role for government. And we have a very, and we were able to actually put more money into the public transport system as a result of liberating ourselves from the, the, the coal uh, freight lines. So, interestingly, in Western Australia, government never owned the, the lines that uh, BHP takes its iron ore to port. That was always set up as a private business. And there would be the idea that the government might buy it um, would seem preposterous to the people of WA. So, you know, it's a, there's complexities in all of these issues around public financing and it's a very hard conversation not only to have within the Labor Party but within the community. That's a very different conversation to something like the electricity poles and wires that actually affect every single citizen that goes into every single home. Um, and I'm not going to sort of get into that debate but I'm just saying these two assets are completely different and we ought to be able to have different conversations about them. The, um, you're talking now about the way you've thought through the decision and um, getting evidence and making a kind of case-by-case -case decision. You did that also um, uh, earlier when you were the education minister looking at uh, a universal kindergarten year or prep uh, when you introduced that. Can you talk a little bit about how Queensland was different, how you went, how you went about making a decision to add an extra year of schooling and the, the battles you had to get that through your own um, cabinet? Uh, in 1957, I think it was, the Queensland government, I mean, this tells you how much government has changed. Uh, the Queensland, in Queensland, there was very few publicly available high school places. You had to sit a scholarship exam, uh, and in most parts of Queensland, if you got a scholarship, you went to a grammar school. There were not public available, publicly available high schools um, across the state. Um, the government of the day had made an election commitment to bring in universally available high school, or secondary schooling. Uh, they'd not done it in their first term. They were under a lot of pressure in their second term. Uh, and so they overnight, we did have a prep year in the same way as, I think it's called prep here in the ACT, it's called kinder in New South Wales. Um, at the beginning of our, the beginning of primary before children go into their first formal year one. But the government of the day um, at the time, and it was a Labor government, uh, overnight fixed this problem by declaring unilaterally halfway through the year that all prep children were now year one children, all year one children were now year two children, and so on up the line, <laughs> until you got grade eights, and now you had high school kids. And that... Um, There's a lesson. <laughs> <laughs> and there is almost no parliamentary debate about it. There is no, um, you know, looking into the um, history of it, there is almost no controversy. Everyone just said, oh, well, okay then. <laughs> Can you imagine it happening now? Uh, but the legacy of that is that uh, when I became education minister in 2001, so some, you know, almost 50 years later, uh, Queensland had one less year of schooling uh, to all of the other jurisdictions in the country, actually Queensland and WA. 
and they were dealing with it at the same time. And you know, I think we all understand that knowledge and education are the currency of the 21st century. And we were promoting a, Peter Beattie was premier and he was very much promoting a philosophy of Queensland as the smart state of Australia. And I said, you know, it's, it's a bit hard when we have one less year of schooling. <laughs> and as a result, you know, our children, uh, because of that bumping everybody up, our kids were also um, younger when they started uh, year one. So when they did, for example, their NAPLAN tests, they were on average about 10 months younger than other children around the country and they'd had one less year of schooling. Surprise, surprise, they didn't do very well by comparison. And so it seemed to me that if I was going to be the Minister for Education that there was really one big reform and we just had to tackle it. And no one had tackled it. And, but you can imagine what it would mean to put an extra year of schooling in every single primary school, uh, state, Catholic and independent across the state. Everything from the school of the air to remote indigenous communities to great big primary schools in growing um, suburbs and, and regions. So a uh, very big chunk of the budget. And uh, you know, whenever you take, I, I talk about this example in the book because I was trying to find a way of talking about how, how you make things happen in government and what you do when you've got your hands on the levers and how difficult even something that might seem uh, a pretty good idea. Um, you'd, you'd think it would be hard to oppose an extra year of schooling, but there were many opponents. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the Queensland Teachers Union felt bound, as you would expect, to represent their um, existing preschool teachers. And there was, there was some preschool available, but it was only available to about 20% of kids, and it was only half time. And of course, those people who taught in that were very nervous about change and many of them really didn't want to see a full-time year of prep come in. Uh, there were many mums and dads of, of kids who were worried about what lifting the school entry age might do and what this extra year of school might mean for their children's childhood. And a lot of my colleagues, on the one hand, thought it was a good idea, but they understand that every dollar that I get out of the budget for that new prep year is a dollar they're not going to get for something they think is important. So uh, that, that part of the book is really an, an exploration of what it what it's like at a personal level trying to navigate all of those stakeholders and over a period of time make something big happen because government is such a big unwieldy you know a beast to get things through and uh, I, I thought that was a bit of an something that offered an insight into how things happen in government or don't happen sometimes but we did make that one happen. <laughs> Yes, I was taught by, first of all, I was taught by Franciscan nuns for the first three years. Um, Franciscans take their um, name from Francis of Assisi. They were very gentle nuns who, um, you know, were, were a delight. And then I went to the Sisters of Mercy. My friend calls them the Sisters of Show No Mercy. Yes, or the Sisters Without. <laughs> But I do talk very fondly about them in the book because uh, they were of a very different, um, you know, back, they came from a very different view. And they really were the first people in my life who made me um, understand what it meant to strive and to excel because they expected it of every one of us. And I was at, um, you know, Guardian Angels Convent at Southport in the 1960s on the Gold Coast. And at that time, there was really not a lot expected of little girls. 
Uh, it was openly talked about that you didn't have to go beyond grade 10 because that would be a waste because everyone understood that you, would not, you know, wouldn't use whatever education you got because you were going to, you had a life trajectory that would see you as a, as a wife and a mother and you didn't need education for that, even though you might be responsible for educating the next generation. And the nuns, the Sisters of Mercy, uh, did not hold to that view. And they were really the, the first and most, and, and very strong force in my life and all the girls in my, in my um, school, that girls not only can do uh, any other thing, can do anything but should. That, uh, you know, they brought it from a very religious framework that God gave you these talents and you had an obligation uh, if you had potential to realise it. And so while it, they were obviously very conservative, they measured our hemlines and, you know, <laughs> thought that patent leather shoes were the work of the devil and, um, and all of the things that we know about, you know, Catholicism in those years. On the other hand, it was very subversive. You know, there was something very subversive about the work they were doing, telling young women uh, that they could aspire to something more than the rest of the community was telling us. And I will be forever grateful to them for that. Uh, and they were, you know, very strong, very strong-willed, very independent women, and they were great role models. And um, strong-willed and independent, they made you so that in your early days at university, um, you talk about uh, journalists rediscovering some footage of you doing an interview uh, in your early years at university, um, and uh, coincidentally, uh, Anna and I, well, when I was women's officer at UTS, I ran exactly the same campaign, which was to ban the university union selling pornography. <laughs> the, the reason being, why should a service offered by university students for university students profit from the selling of women's bodies. Um, there you go, we've got nothing else in common but that. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, you know, but single-handedly we've ended pornography, have you noticed? <laughs> <laughs> That's such a huge impact. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it's uh, uh, actually, um, you talk about looking back on that uh, younger Anna and thinking, well, it's not a bad start to be engaged with the, engaged with issues, prepared to speak up, um, take political action, even in those early days of your life. What would you say to her now? Uh, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> um, this was a piece of footage from an a episode of, current, of a current affair back when current affair shows were actually about current affairs. <laughs> and uh, so this was 1980, I think. And I was just 20 or, or maybe, you know, almost 21. And the student union had taken this step and uh, th they ran like, it was a 15, 12 minute piece on this uh, story. And the, uh, the young journalist who did the program started with, you know, Hitler burnt books here at the University of Queensland, they're just banning them. And, and then the microphone's in my face. Um, and it's, I, I, th this was actually the first television interview I ever did. Uh, and I'd completely forgotten about it. But one of the Channel 7 journalists found it in the archive when I was Premier. And so, uh, thankfully, you know, he just gave it to me, which I thought was very good of him. And I, I, I don't have any video footage of myself at that time in my life. It was, you know, people didn't own video cameras then. And you have still photographs, but, you know, this whole interview with myself. 
And it is, it's, so it's extraordinary to have this piece of um, footage that shows me at the age of 20, where I just look so impossibly young, I can't believe it. But, and so earnest. So, you know, I say in the, the book that my first instinct when I saw it was to say to her, oh, for God's sake, go out and party more, have more fun. You have no idea how quickly all of this, this youth is going to end and how many responsibilities you're going to take on. But watching it, I remembered that for me, at that time in my life, being involved in these issues of the day and debating them with you know, my, my friends and peers at university and being involved in those public debates with the community was actually as, as fulfilling and, and I was as passionate about it and had more fun doing it than at any party I went to at the time. And I did go to my fair share of parties. <laughs> um, and it is interesting to look back at uh, you know, this angry young woman trying to do something that she felt very passionate about uh, and then how the sort of the, the trajectory over the next 20 or 30 years uh, where things get so much more complicated and uh, you know the compromises you have to make but also how much better skilled you get at understanding what it really takes to change something that one big angry kind of symbolic move actually rarely changes anything um, makes you feel good and teaches you things but real change and really entrenching change is, takes a lot longer, is much more complicated, means you have to actually bring people with you, and that's the hardest thing. And uh, so I, I, I'm fascinated by the footage. Um, and yet what I say to her in the book at the end is I say to her, you know, keep going. We need more of you. Um, it's, it's, for me, you know, I, one of the things I love is um, about where I'm working now at the YWCA is the opportunity to work with some very young people, both young men and young women, most of them under 30, and to be energised by that kind of passion. Um, sometimes it does need to be a little kind of guided, but I'd rather be guiding, you know, feisty passion than trying to, you know, light the flame. <laughs> Well, it is the most recent, and uh, and I did in, I decided to include it in the book because uh, in experiencing cancer and going through the treatment, it really brought home to me how many Australian lives are touched by this disease and how many families, how many people have had some experience of it. Um, I've been very lucky in my life to have not had close friends or family who have experienced it, so I actually went into it. Um, you know, with very little understanding of the disease itself and very little understanding or knowledge of what the treatment would be like. And it is a very humbling experience. There's nothing more levelling than a serious disease. Um, uh, in an interesting way, I think it really helped me um, move beyond, um, you know, the politics of my previous role as Premier. Uh, and it certainly helped me refocus my life on... Because there's no clear path out of politics. Um, when you're Premier, Prime Minister, you know, particularly, you can't spend one minute of your brain uh, thinking about what you're going to do next. The minute you start thinking about what you're going to do post-politics, you are not 100% focused on your 24-7 job. And you certainly can't go and start talking to people about it. You, know, you can't go and have a few <laughs> chats with people. And so, you know, I think for everybody, you know, whether you're John Howard or me, or it doesn't matter who or what time in your life or what side of politics you come from, um, you know, the, the bad news is, Tanya, there's no clear path out. <laughs> there's no clear path in and there's no clear path out. 
And it does take a lot of thinking about how do you want to live your life. I, I think volcanics is one way or another they carry you out. out. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, sorry. There's a really clear way out the door. You get a big involuntary redundancy. <laughs> you know, four million people decide that you don't have a job anymore. <laughs> um, that part is clear. But then, what in terms of what do you do next? And I think even for those people who are fortunate enough to leave politics at a time of their own choosing, have the same experience. And, and I think that is a, quite a slow process to work through. And for me, actually having the cancer accelerated it because it really did stop me from looking backwards and thinking about all that. And you know, I thought, oh, hell, I might not have much time left. I better start looking a lot more forward. And yeah, that's what I think been a very helpful thing. Well, Adam Lai, I have to say, I always adored and admired you. And having read the book, <laughs> I feel that even more strongly. Um, it's, it, it's actually beautifully written as well. Uh, your years of um, reading and your most recent months of book club have also paid off because it's, <laughs> it's beautifully written and has so many, um, so many vignettes that people will be able to identify with, including those little cardboard boxes we used to carry home at Lent to put our coins in. For <laughs> <laughs> those of you who aren't Catholic, don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> No, that will never happen. Um, uh, my husband is a blues, is, was born in New South Wales as a blues supporter, has poisoned my son's minds and their blues supporters. Um, so, you know, we would always have these very long arguments in Queensland uh, when I was back living there. Um, but it suited me because, you know, they would cheer for the blues and I'd win. So, um, <laughs> and I do want to put it on the record now that you've asked that question, that Queensland never, won, never lost a state of origin while I was Premier. <laughs> Something that Campbell Newman cannot say. <laughs> Hi, Anna. Uh, my name's Ruth. I'm a Queenslander. I'm usually proud to say that. Occasionally, I mutter it. Um, but one thing I'm always proud of is being a member of the YWCA. Um, so, oh, hello. I was wondering if you could share with us why you decided to take on the role in New South Wales. And uh, given that you've been leader of a state, what new things are you learning and what new challenges are you facing now that you're a leader of a not-for-profit organisation? Well, thank you for that question. As I was saying earlier, there really isn't an absolutely clear path out. 
But one of the things I was deeply conscious of is that if you have the opportunity and privilege of leadership of uh, you know, your state or your country, the process of getting to that position and then the, pro the experience of uh, living it does give you, um, you know, an incredible set of skills and experiences that I felt a very strong motivation about, well, how I got those experiences, you know, at public expense. You know, it was the public that supported the, that me in those positions. How can I now best use all of those experiences and skills uh, in, a, in a very productive way? So I, my first uh, job out of university was in the not-for-profit sector and I worked in a number of community organisations. So I'm quite familiar with that sector. I then went on to work in trade unions and other areas. But I have always felt a, a strong affection and, um, and uh, a, attraction um, to that or connection to that sector uh, and the, the values, I suppose, of most of the people who are driven to work in it. And the YWCA is one of Australia's oldest charities. It's one that was set up uh, very much to protect and look after the interests of women and children. Uh, YWCA New South Wales provides services to people regardless of their age, their gender, their religion, um, but most, you know, a very high percentage of our uh, services are with very vulnerable children and young people and very disadvantaged women. And for me, that still feels like unfinished business in this country. My, it was my first job out of university, was a women's refuge, I'm back running women's refuges. And you know, while we've done a very good job in this country of raising that issue, putting in place much better legislative protections than when I first worked in it, providing much better services, we have yet to really see a decline in the incidence of domestic violence. And if I spend the rest of my life doing that, I will feel like it's well lived. <laughs> faces of the Queensland electorate. Um, you saw the Mud Army and you saw the people who were real battlers in regional areas who'd lost everything. And you saw the people who worked so hard to implement the reforms that you wanted to make happen. And you also saw some real rage. You talked at one point about a boiling mob in a hut. And I was living in Toowoomba at the time of the floods, and it was only a couple of months afterwards you came up there to address a community meeting. And people were cheering and roaring at you. How do you serve people when they come to you with the ugly face? <laughs> um, I said earlier that this is not a straightforward, a traditional political biography. It's not a book about settling old scores or you know, putting my record on the record. Uh, it is very much an attempt to um, talk about the personal lived experience of leadership because that is what most people ask me about. What did it feel like? How does it feel when something like that is happening? And you know, there are some parts of it that are really personally difficult. When you're standing in front of a, you know, a mob of 2,000 people, and I use the word mob because you know, in my experience, every one of those 2,000 people are actually fine, decent people when they're on their own. When they find, you know, 1,900 other angry people, um, they behave in ways that they wouldn't necessarily at any other time. Um, mobs do make us all behave uh, in ways that perhaps sometimes later on we're not so proud of. And, uh, and there, it, it's, it can actually be very, very frightening. And I try to be very honest about that fear. Um, and I, I do talk about a, a, a 
big public meeting in Gympie uh, where we were talking to people whose farms and lives were going to be affected by a decision to build a dam. And they were very, very angry. And I understood their anger, but it was you know, still a, quite a frightening thing to be part of. Uh, again, it goes back to that thing about duty. If, if you want the opportunity to have your hands on the levers of power and you want the opportunity to make a difference and you want the chance to do the things that you feel very passionate about uh, and that your party and the people who support you feel passionate about, uh, like the prep year, uh, in a robust, thriving democracy, there's a flip side to it. And the flip side is you also get to listen when people are unhappy. You also get criticised. You also wake up in the morning to ugly headlines um, run by newspapers that the government doesn't control, uh, you, know, uh, you know, pretty ugly cartoons of yourself. That's what, we say, that's, what, that's what we're talking about when we talk about our democracy. And I wouldn't change any of that. It's not very easy to be on the receiving end of it a lot of the time. But, you know, when I weigh up the ledger, you know, that, those experiences and some of the, the bruises and scratches from those experiences uh, pale into insignificance when I put this side of the ledger on the things that we were able to do and I was able to have an effect on. So it goes back to the, uh, the title of the book. Um, I don't want people to look, uh, you know, the first one through the wall always gets bloody. I don't want people to look or see my bruises and scratches. I want them to see the hole in the wall and to not, uh, not, not focus on the problems because it doesn't matter who you are in public life, in the political life of our country, we res it is a national pastime to bag the Prime Minister and the Premier. That is, and that's not going to change. Um, and it doesn't actually matter who holds the position, even when we respect and admire them. Um, you know, that's what you do in the pub on Friday nights and, um, and that's not going to change. You've really got to focus much more on the positives of, well, okay, if I take all that, what do I get to do? And uh, how can I make a difference and make an impact in a way that's constructive? Um, hi, Anna. I'm Martha Ruth. I met you this afternoon. Yes, Ruth and I met in the bookshop when she was buying my book. So, you know, I'm very fond of Ruth. <laughs> <laughs> um, I it was interested to hear about you, your Catholic upbringing and <clears throat> the impact of the nuns. Um, and I wondered, like, if I may, um, is your Christian faith something that's still important to you, what Christian faith? Um, and, or if, if not, um, is there something of the Franciscan or Mercy spiritualities that um, stays with you? Um, thanks, Ruth. I do talk in the book about what I think is the influence in my life and on my values of uh, particularly the Catholicism of the 1960s and early 70s. Uh, for those of you who are Catholic, this was a time of Vatican II when the Catholic Church was opening up to new ideas and there was really very progressive element in the teachings of the church. Um, I have no doubt that my commitment to social justice, my, um, my politics, the values that form the progressive base of the things that I have believed in my adult life are very much grounded in that, uh, that Christian um, background uh, in the best sense of you know, those values about people less fortunate than yourself, um, you know, living a life of, you know, where you, that's not only about yourself and you know, all of those sorts of very important values. Um, but I am no longer an active member of the church. I haven't been since my teenage years. Um, I fell out with them. Uh, <laughs> and um, 
uh, and I talk about that a bit in the book, because I do come from a very, very, very devout you know, and very active Catholic family. I've got nuns and priests the whole show, you know. Um, and so that was not an easy wrench, you know, for me. Uh, but, and so I'm no longer an active practising Christian or Catholic in that sense, but those values have continued to underpin um, my political beliefs, uh, and I do give, in the book, full credit to the Catholic Church for uh, the work that they did to um, instil those values in all of us. Anna, uh, thanks for a great conversation with Tanya, first of all, and looking forward to reading your book. Um, there's a bit of a rumbling critique about the federal government's personalities and behaviours and emotions, and emotions spilling over. Can you give some insight into the emotional waves that you rode as Premier and how you controlled them, how you enjoyed both the thrill and the excitement as well as frustration and disappointment? Um, it, look, you'll have to read the book to get the full story on that, but <laughs> um, it, it, I do actually try to explore, you know, the, and what it's like to ride what is often, you know, a very extreme roller coaster, uh, where you can have exhilarating success one day and, you know, shattering loss the next. Uh, and, uh, you know, it is, a, it is a profoundly emotional business politics. It's very much about people, it's about humanity, and uh, it is those people who are driven enough to go into it, to keep uh, progressing through the, the ranks and to take on and, and pursue the mantle of leadership. And you do pursue it. No one takes on political leadership by accident. You know, there are certainly, you know, there are, there are no such things as accidental premiers. Um, well, Mike Baird might have a slightly different experience, but... Um, <laughs> Particularly for women at this point in our history, you know, there aren't any, you know, it's not an accident and you, you do actually pursue it. And to do all of that, you have to be uh, on either side of politics. You do have to be very passionate about what, you know, about what you're aspiring to for yourself and for the ideas that are important to your party and the people who support it. And, and so all that passion does come out in ways that are often not easy to control. And you know, part of the job is helping to manage your caucus through, um, you know, very dispiriting and demoralising times, as well as you know, trying to keep a lid on hubris when things are going really well and everything's um, you know kind of looking like it's it's um, you know that we're unassailable, because that's never going to last. Uh, in the in the quote that uh, Tanya asked me to read. Uh, the reason why I, I got a bit lost in the middle there is because there's actually several paragraphs in, in the middle of me describing that speech where I talk about the moment when I'm giving the speech when I start to choke up and falter because I was absolutely... I had absolute clarity in my mind that day when I walked into that press conference that my job as leader was to rally people, to do and say things that would uplift them and that we would all have to dig deep and find something in ourselves that perhaps we'd never had to find before if we were ever going to overcome the overwhelming grief and, and trauma that was all around us. And as I started to say those words and I started to choke up, uh, for me, I felt at that moment that I had completely failed in my duty as a leader that at the moment that people needed me to lift them up, uh, what they saw was the leadership faltering. And at the very moment they needed to see us strong, me as the public face of the government and of the, lead the disaster leadership team uh, was you know, starting to snivel and that that was not where I had wanted to be. 
And it wasn't till I left that press conference and uh, the reaction started coming in that I began to understand that, in fact, faltering at exactly that moment in exactly that way was exactly the right thing. And, and that really speaks to, I think, just what a fine line leaders walk between every day, between, on the one hand, having to convey them, comport themselves in a way that commands authority and conveys strength and inspires confidence in that strength, while at the same time having enough empathy and compassion to understand when people need some emotional attention. And it's actually a very fine line to walk. And I don't, it's not, that's not restricted to political leadership. I think CEOs have the same you know, line to walk uh, you know, when they're implementing big restructures or trying to get an organisation to change. Uh, I think anyone who's been in a position of leadership will tell you about that fine line and emotion and understanding the messy business of emotion, I think is a really critical leadership skill. And most of us are grappling with it on the go. <laughs> One more last question. Uh, Anna, thanks. Oh, sorry, we've got someone on. with a... Sorry. Anyway, following on from that particular answer, what do you think of the present uh, situation that's developed in Queensland with the government? And what do you uh, think of the Labor pre-selection methods? Sorry, what was the last...? Um... The Labor pre-selection methods oh, for, okay. for members of Parliament. Um, look, I, I don't really want to comment in too much detail about the current day-to-day -day politics of Queensland. I made a commitment not to do it uh, with the Newman government, and I didn't, and I don't intend to do it with Anastasia's government. Uh, simply because I'm not privy to all of the facts. I only have you know, the same um, information at this stage as is in the newspapers. But in relation to the second question, I will say that I think what it, the situation does demonstrate is just how reliant political parties, uh, all political parties are, on an honesty system. Um, political parties do not have the right to criminal, do a criminal history check uh, on potential candidates. Uh, and look, most political, many political, most political parties, a lot of the time, we're so grateful to have a candidate put up their hand um, <laughs> that you that you are clear. And I don't say that you know to make a joke, although it is you know it is funny at some point. Um, you know there are some there are some seats on the pendulum that people will always fight over, but you actually will not get into government without having good candidates in the other seats. And actually finding people, in my experience, has become harder and harder and harder to do. Uh, because you know, I think people increasingly see the sort of scrutiny that people in public life are under. They see the criticism. They see the 24-hour news cycle chew them up. They see all the social media platforms you know, relentlessly um, you know, invading their lives. And they think, oh, I don't want to live like that. And that doesn't mean that political parties should take anyone. I do think simply that this case in Queensland will probably mean that all political parties will have, go back and have a really good look at how they could avoid, um, you know, what if anything you can do to perhaps bolster what is currently a, an honesty system, uh, where you are asked as a candidate to provide any disclosures of anything that might influence uh, the election. And if people uh, you know, are not honest about that, it does put the party in a very invidious position. Oh, yes.
I'll introduce my next speaker, <laughs> who's very well known to me, but I wanted to make sure that you know who Penny Wensley is. Penny Wensley is now um, living with her husband, Stuart, here in Canberra. And so when you see her around, I want you to know what a remarkable woman she is. Penny was appointed, I appointed Penny as the governor of Queensland in 2008. Mm -hmm. uh, and she performed that job, um, you know, when I had to appoint a governor because Kevin Rudd stole Quentin Bryce from Queensland. <laughs> And as you can imagine, it was not easy to think about who would fill the shoes of someone like Quentin. I was absolutely delighted when Penny Wensley accepted the position after a very long and distinguished uh, career in foreign affairs representing Australia uh, in a number of international um, postings. Uh, she uh, did a brilliant job as governor uh, and I'm very, very pleased to be able to see her again tonight. Uh, so, you know, if you see her around anywhere in Canberra, just say hello, Gov. <laughs> Well, that was unexpected, Anna. Thank you. Um, Professor Colin Steele and ANU colleagues, representatives of HarperCollins Publishers, we're very pleased they're here tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, Anna. As a fellow Queenslander and fellow feminist, with an abiding interest in many of the questions addressed in this book, and as someone who shared with the author some of the experiences that she describes most notably, the dreadful succession of natural disasters that assaulted Queensland during her time as Premier and mine as Governor. I was absolutely delighted to be telephoned and invited to propose the vote of thanks this evening. As has been evident tonight in the earlier conversation with Tanya Plibersek and in her answers to your questions. Anna Bly is a brave, clear-speaking woman. And this is a brave, clear-speaking book. Its candor and its honesty is absolutely compelling. And as she wanted it to be, it's a good read. In the preface, Anna observes, a book demands a good story, and a good story has something to say. My expectation is that it will say many things to many people, not least because it actually tells not one story, but many different stories. And within the larger stories, each of them compartmentalised in the separate chapters, each of which deal with a, a different aspect of Anna's life and experiences, there are stories within stories. And all of them seasoned with a, a rich flavour of observations and reflections and truly thoughtful and perceptive analysis. The media has already seized, if any of you have heard Margaret Throsby's interview and some of the other uh, commentary and read some of the uh, uh, reviews in the press, has already seized on the issues of alcoholism and addiction that affected Anna's father 
and all her family. Not least, they seized on it because of Anna's sensitive dissection of its patterns and its impacts. There's really some remarkable passages in that part of the book. And I believe that her understanding and compassion will encourage others who are struggling to deal with these problems in their own lives, as will, again, I have absolutely no doubt, the equally candid and, and very personal story of her cancer diagnosis, the extraordinary shock that that represented to her and to her family, and how they dealt with it. Her reflections on leadership and on women and leadership will attract and be of value to, to many readers. And, and I hope, Anna, that they'll fulfill your wish, especially to inspire more young women, not only to go into politics, but to take on less conventional roles. Her descriptions of the experience of managing crises, especially the natural disasters I referred to earlier, are utterly absorbing. And the two chapters, one of them titled, Water, Water Everywhere, and the other, you heard about it earlier, the rule book runs out, will be read and reread by those who endured those disasters and perhaps by future leaders seeking guidance in similar challenging circumstances. And the stories of love, love of her mother, love of Greg, love of her sons, love of words, of music and poetry, will also find their mark with many readers. And in that regard, the book might well serve to introduce some readers to the work of Leonard Cohen, <laughs> who turns out to have been an abiding influence in Anna's life. Now, whilst I knew his music, I'm ashamed to say, as a student of literature, that I wasn't aware of his novel, nor of his poetry, other than the poetry in his songs. And so I've been exploring these with considerable interest over recent days. So thank you for this. And on the matter of thanks and my responsibility in this regard, I thank the ANU for organising and co-hosting with the Canberra Times this evening's function as part of its Meet the Author series. I thank in absentia Tanya Plibersek for her really generous involvement in the event as conductor of the conversation. And I thank you, Anna, on behalf of everyone present for sharing this special time with us this evening and for making the effort actually to write this book. It 
took a lot of work, a lot of discipline, of searching self-examination, and on some issues, a lot of courage to write it all down. But it was worth it. It was worth it for your readers, but I hope it was also worth it for you. Not least because you clearly have a lot of living and a lot of contributing ahead of you. And perhaps you needed to write it. Because just as you talked about the catharsis in the work that Queenslanders undertook after the floods, page 261, this too has been a cathartic labour. Maybe as Cohen did in his novel, Beautiful Losers, you wondered, how can I begin anything new with all of yesterday in me? Well, with the yesterday now out there for all to see, there's surely a lot of scope for even more new beginnings. We wish you well with whatever these may be. And as a tangible expression of thanks for tonight's presentation, I would like to present you with this book, I'm Your Man, <laughs> The Life of Leonard Cohen, drawn from Colin Steele's personal collection. Ladies and gentlemen, please thank Anna Bly. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.